0: agenda. A voice in the desert. Now, here's Crystal Heath. Oh my goodness, what a week. Hey everybody, this is Crystal Heath. Welcome to the Friddle Show. So much to talk about today. We're going to try and get it into a short program, but no promises. When I came in to record, I was like, yeah, I can do this in 25 minutes. It's not going to be a problem. And then I sat down, started researching, started looking at different things. I was like, okay, there's more to talk about than I thought so no promises. (laughs) So we're going to talk about impeachment. They won't. And inflation. We will. But before we get to that, congrats to Tom Brady and the Buccaneers. Historic win over the Chiefs. And by the way, I know there are a lot of Brady fans out there who are Going off on how amazing Tom Brady is, and I'm not saying that he's not, and I'm not saying that it's not amazing that he won ten Super Bowls. But if you really look at that game, if you look at how this year went, uh, the Bucks won that game. Yeah, or no, I'm sorry, yeah, obviously they did. Their defense won that game. Like Brady played well, but the Bucks defense was amazing, and that's what won that game. It reminded me so much of when Peyton Manning came back. From uh, from his injury and won the Super Bowl with the Broncos. He was good, but his defense was amazing, and that's what won. And that's what happened to the Chiefs. They just the Bucks defense took it up a hundred notches, and <laughs> Mahomes didn't throw a single touchdown. Okay, that's how the Buccaneers won. Nobody else has been able to achieve that feat. Meanwhile, the mayor of Tampa says that they will be prosecuting maskless fans that were at the Super Bowl. I mean, and there is photographic evidence that she was, in fact, maskless at the Super Bowl. So there's that. Um, the There are those calling for Joe Biden to appoint a fashion czar, because, you know, for some reason, that is, I guess, something that we should do. The Capitol Police are voting to hold a no-confidence vote in leadership, in the force's leadership, for its failure to adequately prepare for what happened on January 6th. And I think that that is something that we should be looking at a lot more carefully, even as this impeachment process goes down. The Biden administration has quietly dropped a Trump proposal to track Chinese influence in U.S. schools. The Daily Color News Foundation reports that the Biden administration quietly withdrew a rule proposed by the Trump administration that would have required American schools and universities to disclose their partnerships with Confucius Institutes, which some U.S. officials allege are front groups for Chinese Communist Party propaganda. Well, well, well. Around 500 K-12 schools and 65 colleges in the United States have partnerships with the Confucius Institute and U.S. Center, a U.S.-based affiliate of the Beijing-based Confucius Institute headquarters. The institute, also known as Hanban, is affiliated with the Chinese Ministry of Education. Many of Hanban's directors are members of the Chinese Communist Party or have close ties to the organization. interesting i mean interesting <sighs> but you know impeachment 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 it's amazing to me right now how no one is talking about biden really we're not talking about what biden is doing we're not talking about the it, i think it's it's either 52 or 53 now executive orders that have been signed by this man. We're not talking about his broken promises or his lack of appearances or the fact that he and his administration are not answering any questions and are just going to circle back all the time. Donald Trump is gone. He is no longer president, but he is still the only thing the left wants to talk about because if we can keep the focus on Trump, then we're not talking about the fact that Joe Biden just has signed 50 some executive orders that he has withdrawn what we had put in place to make sure that our schools and our colleges and our children weren't being influenced by chinese communist propaganda i mean somehow that seems like that should be a bipartisan issue just saying i mean after after this impeachment trial is over then what what how are they going to find a way to talk about trump then i'm genuinely curious Once this impeachment sham is over, will we then get to talk about Joe Biden, or are we still going to have to circle back to Biden because we need to stay focused on Trump? And how in tarnation have we elected a group of uneducated people that somehow think it is constitutionally valid to impeach someone who is not an elected official? The precedent, or lack thereof, I guess, that's being sent here, is just, it's scary. And, and we're going to talk about this. We're going to get into the ins and outs of it. We're going to look at the history of this thing. And and I know that some people are like, they can impeach Trump. They're impeaching America. They're impeaching me and my rights. No, 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 no. Nope, nope. What Democrats are doing is something very similar, though, to eliminating the supermajority. And that came back to bite them. And I can't imagine that this will be any different. We can now impeach Hillary, Obama, John Kerry, anybody we want, really. Anytime we want. For anything we want. Whether or not it is, it is uh, proven or accurate or anything else, so they don't—they don't want to impeach you, but they do want to cancel you. They want to cancel you like they're canceling the the Mandalorian access. What's her name, Gina? Gina something. I wasn't a huge fan of her character, but she's made some comments. She's a she was a, a Trump supporter, and she said that being a Republican, a modern day Republican. She compared being a modern day Republican to being Jewish during the Holocaust, which that is a bit extreme that is a bit extreme, but considering that the people the the character of the individuals that Disney chooses to keep on their payroll i uh you know and there's you can you can read all about it. it's all over the internet but the the company has been looking for a excuse to fire her or an excuse to fire her for. A very long time. And that one crossed the line just enough that they can, they can now do that. But make no doubt about it. She is being gotten rid of because she is an outspoken Republican. You're not allowed to be on television if you have outspoken political views. Oh wait! I'm sorry. You're only not allowed to be on television if you have outspoken... Republican or conservative views. That's, that's the, that's where it's at. So they're not trying to impeach you. They're trying to cancel you. They're trying to impeach Donald Trump. It's not going to work. Rand Paul, and kudos to him, forced a vote to determine, for for his senators to have to go on record to say if the trial of the former president was in fact constitutional. Most Republicans believe the trial is unconstitutional and voted no. Only five Republicans joined the Democrats on the vote, which would have been uh, Mitt Romney, Ben Sass, Susan Collins, Lisa Murkowski and Pat Toomey uh, that it was constitutional. So the Senate voted 56 uh, to 44 to, a, to, to say that this constitution, that this trial, rather, was constitutional and that it would proceed. However, you need I believe it's two-thirds vote um I believe it's two thirds vote hang on. Yeah, two thirds vote to convict on and what they're going for is high tr- crimes and misdemeanors for inciting a mob to storm the Capitol. So two thirds vote would mean that you only need thirty four people to vote no, and that would be enough to acquit. So even if the Democrats manage to sway 10 more people, this, this isn't going to happen. I'm telling you, this is, just, this is smoke and mirrors, this is distraction from what is happening in, in Washington, D.C., in actuality, so that we don't talk about that, so that we just keep all the focus on Trump. And then they're going to try and paint these Republicans who are voting no because they say this is not a constitutional process, not to mention, the evidence isn't there. I mean, they're they're literally lying on the floor. The, the siciline was uh, said that Trump summoned an armed crowd. This is completely false. If you actually watch the whole video and not just the clips of videos that the Democrats put their 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 team put together in a very convincing and and, and horrible way. I'm sorry, not in a horrible way. Like it 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 was very compelling, and it's uh, and I've talked about this after this whole incident happened. What happened on January 6th was awful. It was terrible, and as I said then, I repeat now, everyone that participated in storming the Capitol and breaching the building in in, in what happened with the officers and individuals that were injured, those people should be prosecuted to the full extent of the law. I fully support their prosecution. But to say that Trump incited the riot and that he summoned an armed crowd, like you can just lie in front of Congress now and it's not a problem? And by the way, the Democrats left, uh, you know, just a few minutes of Trump's speech out of their video. One line about, you know, the president saying that the individuals there should peacefully and patriotically make their voices heard. But but impeachment was intended to remove someone from office. You cannot remove someone from office who is not in office. And the the chief justice... <laughs> This is my favorite part. I don't know how, and, and I'm mostly disappointed with Ben Sass and Pat Toomey on this one, because generally I really like those guys. But he, this, this should tell you everything you need to know. There was no chief justice presiding at this thing on, uh, on February 9th. So on Tuesday of this week when this all started, the chief justice was not presiding. You know Why? Because the Constitution does not speak to trying a former president. How can you even have a trial of, <laughs> of a... You, you can't. It doesn't... Oh, it's so frustrating. Okay, but to be fair, let us look at all the evidence. Let us consider all of the angles, okay? First off, impeachment in the words of the Founders. Shall we look at what the Founders had to say about this? We'll just we'll just see. It was seventeen eighty seven, summer in Philadelphia. the The writers and signers who had, were there for the Constitutional Convention were discussing impeachments and its their specifics. It was this topic was first addressed on June seventh, or excuse me, June second, seventeen eighty seven, when George Mason of Virginia argued that some mode of displacing an unfit magistrate needed to be put in place to avoid an executive or or government official developing any kind of supremacy. Again, we're trying to avoid becoming England. Many of the delegates agreed that this was something that needed to happen, but they could not agree on the best process for how to remove such an elected official. John Dickinson of Delaware uh, spoke of this concern and argued that the executive should be removed if a majority of the state legislatures voted in the affirmative. But only his home state of Delaware supported this. So then the convention attempted to define what an unfit executive would be. Hugh Williamson from North Carolina proposed that an executive could be removed in cases of malpractice or neglect of duty. The convention decided to adopt this description knowing that they would need to better define it later on. Fast forward. July 20th, 1787 some delegates decide we need to have a debate whether it is wise to be able to bring an official up for impeachment at all. Charles Pinckney from South Carolina said he did not see the necessity of impeachment and that Congress would hold them as a rod over the executive and by that means effectively destroy the independence of the executive office. His argument was that elections were what was to be used to remove a a, a president so this guy's argument was well if we put this process in place then Congress is going to use this to beat the president up if they don't like him or if he doesn't agree with them and then the executive will lose its independence and the people will not have the say that they should James Madison may have heard of him from Virginia took the other side he said that executives could commit actions in office that would demand their removal. He warned the president might betray his trust to foreign powers. William Davy of North Carolina cautioned that if the president be not impeachable whilst in office, he will spare no efforts or means whatsoever to get himself reelected. So, if they can do anything they want with no form of consequence except elections, then what they—they're going to go crazy. Elbridge Gerry of Massachusetts argued that the threat of impeachments provided an essential check on the executive office. He said a good magistrate will not fear them, but a bad one ought to be kept in fear of them. Edmund Randolph continued from Virginia. He said uh, the executive will have great opportunities of abusing power, particularly in time of war when the military force, and in some respects of public money, will be set in his hands. Governor Morris of Pennsylvania agreed that very few offenses warranted removal, but thought the cases ought to be enumerated and defined. So, by a vote of eight states to two, the Constitutional Convention determined that presidents can or could be impeached. Then, they had to determine what was an impeachable act. Fast forward again, September 4th, 1787. The committee decides to def- to change the the previous language of malpractice or neglect of duty to acts of treason or bribery. George Mason questioned that and said, Why is the provision restrained to treason and bribery only? Treason as defined in the Constitution will not reach many great and dangerous offenses. Attempts to subvert the Constitution may not be treason as above defined. Madison also objected to so vague a term. Uh, well, I, I'm sorry, Mason wanted them to change the term to maladministration. Madison said that that was too objective or, or vague and that impeachment would become a political remedy rather than a moral one. So Mason subjected substituting the phrase with other high crimes and misdemeanors against the state. The phrase was adopted, and that is where we are today. Now they changed it to other crimes uh, against the United States. So, the removal process, impeachable acts, by the Constitutional Convention were defined as treason, bribery, or other high crimes and misdemeanors against the United States. Representative Gerald Ford, may have heard of him, at the time he was a Republican representative from Michigan, during the early stages of the Watergate inquiry, said, quote, an impeachable offense is whatever a majority of the House of Representatives considers it to be at a given moment in history. In the 220 years since the Constitutional Convention convened and determined that impeachment would be an option for the president, scholars and Congress have argued and debated what does it mean? What does the word "high crimes" or phrase rather "high crimes" mean? What is required? What must a president do in order to be impeached? Great question. According to uh, uh, Ford there, whatever Congress says is an impeachable offense. So is that it? Is that how it works? Probably my favorite thing about the whole Constitutional Convention impeachment argument is Benjamin Franklin. <laughs> he was like, you know, impeachment, I think impeachment, we should go with that. Because it's it's preferable to the more traditional way of removing a monarch death you know i mean you gotta love ben franklin sometimes right but so the so we've that's the history of how we got impeachment okay the founders are arguing they're they're very concerned some are saying you know if we if we put the impeachment process in place then congress will wield too much power Uh, to to get rid of a president, even if it might be against the people's will. Others were arguing that Congress uh, would then wield too much power over the president because then the president would just do whatever Congress wanted so that the Congress would not impeach him. But they decided that the, the necessity outweighed the risks and they kept impeachment in place. But then, then we have to go to, okay... So, we can impeach a president, and these are the things we can impeach him for. Treason, high crimes, misdemeanors. But what about if the president is no longer the president? Can we impeach him then? Is there any historical precedent for such a thing? To answer that question, we have to go to 1799. About 11 years after the Constitutional Convention, the House of Representatives impeached a guy named William Blount. He was a senator, uh... But he had already been expelled from office. Uh, He had represented North Carolina at the Constitutional Convention, but said little at the proceedings when he was in Philadelphia. He was one of 39 delegates who signed uh, the Constitution and promoted its ratification in North Carolina. So, uh, 10 years later, so he's he's a delegate at the convention. 10 years later, he gets some land west of the Mississippi on credit, and he's in significant debt. France had just defeated Spain in the War of the Pyrenees, and in order to prevent Spain from ceding France, its territories, and potentially depressing Western land prices even more, remember, the guy's in debt, Blount became involved in a plan, or really a plot, for Native Americans and frontiersmen to attack parts of present-day Missouri and Louisiana, which would ultimately then be transferred to Great Britain. So he's trying to use his influence and his power for personal gain, by (laughs) essentially committing, you know, treason. A letter outlining what was happening fell into the hands of the Secretary of State at the time, a guy named Timothy Pickering. The letter was given to President John Adams, and he sent it to Congress. Blount then became the first federal government official subject to the impeachment process. But before this happens, the Senate expels Blount under Article 1, Section 5, it's called the Expulsion Clause. It provides that each House may determine the rules of its own proceedings, punish its members for disorderly behavior, and with the concurrence of two-thirds expel a member. So, the House impeached Blunt, Blount, and the Senate was obliged to try Blount when the final impeachment articles were presented to it. But, <laughs> the Senate faced two questions. First, was a Senator considered a civil officer under the Impeachment Clause, and could a, if he was could a civil officer out of office face trial and conviction in the senate because they'd already they'd already kicked him out and now he's impeached so now he's no longer actually a senator can they then go forward with this process the constitution center has a fascinating article about this. It says that Jared Ingersoll, a signer of the Constitution, was one of the attorneys representing Blount at the trial. Ingersoll argued that a senator was not a civil officer subject to impeachment, unlike the president and other officials. Representative James A. Bernard of Delaware, the House's lead manager, replied that the considerations for the Northwest Ordinance of 1787 and the Constitution's plain language made it clear that senators were civil officers subject to impeachment. Rep-, Rep. Baird, Alexander James Ballas debated that secondary question said that a civil officer could not ex- escape impeachment through resignation the party by resignation or the commission of some offense which merited and occasioned his expulsion might secure his impunity this is against one of the sagest maxims of the law which does not allow a man to derive a benefit from his own wrong so, so they're arguing this in the end they voted to dismiss the motion that William Blount was a civil officer of the United States within the meaning of the Constitution. They then passed a resolution that said the court is of the opinion that the matter alleged in the plea of the defendant is sufficient in law to show that this court ought not to hold jurisdiction of the said impeachment, and that the said impeachment is dismissed. Now, Scholars say that this is evidence that a senator cannot be impeached and that expulsion by a two-thirds vote is instead the proper remedy, but this was not conclusively stated. Is this, a, is this an impeachment stamp of how impeachments should proceed, or is this solely what should be done in the case of a senator, particularly if the senator has been ex- expelled? Is that, is that it? Does a senator be expelled, and that is where it stops? Is expulsion supposed to replace impeachment in the case of a senator? Not really much help there, is it? But we can look at another case. We had the 1876 impeachment trial of William Belknap. He served as Secretary of War for President Ulysses S. Grant and faced allegations of receiving kickbacks. He resigned moments before the House approved articles of impeachment. The House charged Belknap with basely prostituting his high office to his lust for private gain. (laughs) The House charged Belknap Um, or excuse me, at Belknap's trial, according to constitutioncenter.org, the Senate passed a motion in a 37 to 29 vote that William W. Belknap, the respondent, is amenable to trial by impeachment for acts done as Secretary of War, notwithstanding his resignation of said office before he was impeached. The Senate later acquitted Belknap on all charges, lacking a two-thirds majority to convict. We then have a third precedent, the case of federal judge West Hughes Humphreys. Humphreys left the federal bench in Tennessee to join the Confederacy as a judge without resigning his federal commission. In January of 1862, House member John Bingham led the investigating committee which charged Humphreys with high crimes and misdemeanors. The Senate found Humphreys guilty on seven charges in June 1862 and in a separate vote, a unanimous Senate disqualified Humphreys from holding federal office again. So in the only real definitive case we have of this, it dealt with a federal judge who literally joined the Confederacy and was actively fighting against the United States. So, Was Trump actively fighting against the United States? Simple answer is no. Trump did not smash anything or lead anyone into the Capitol. People are going to argue whether or not his speech was enough, and if his speech directly told individuals to go and attack the Capitol, I think if you watch the speech in its entirety, it is hard to make that argument. Instead, what you see is the president saying, Here are the grievances. Let us have a peaceful protest. Now, a minority, a very great minority, of those who were gathered in Washington, D.C., chose to act in a way that was un-American and despicable and disgusting. Is President Trump responsible for their actions? That is the question. But, whether or not you think the President was responsible for their actions is a separate question from the constitutionality of impeaching someone who is no longer holding the office. And 44 members of our Senate have said, no, it is not constitutional to do so. And if you believe that it is not constitutional to proceed, then their vote, the next, when it actually comes time to vote on the on the, on the uh, uh, acquittal or conviction is going to have to be acquittal because, regardless of the feeling that they may have about whether or not Trump was, uh, was, was, was uh, the reasoning and the instigator or committed some kind of high crime, misdemeanor, or treason by in instigating what happened on January 6th, regardless of their thought on that question, because they believe it is not constitutional, they cannot vote Yes. They cannot vote to convict if they believe, as 44 of them have shown that they do, that it is not constitutional. And this is where things are getting so muddled and so confusing and so messed up in how this is all being reported. It's not about whether or not you think the president instigated what happened at the Capitol. It is about whether or not what they're doing is constitutional. And again, since 44 senators have said no, it's not, then that answer has to follow through once it comes time to make the acquittal vote. And he will be acquitted because they only need 34 votes to acquit. And that's what's that is going to happen. So it's an an impeachment sham. In my opinion, the entire purpose of this thing uh, was to make sure that Donald Trump cannot ever run for office again, because would he actually be convicted, then that would that would be the case. And and let me be clear, no one is above the law, not even the president. That is what our Constitutional Convention determined, regardless of whether or not I- even the, the danger of him being able to be influenced by Congress or Congress having too much power. Even those arguments were not enough for them to say, you know what, it doesn't matter, the president is not above the law, so if he commits an impeachable offense, then he can be tried and convicted and removed from office. That's, that's not the argument here. The argument is, is not even, did Trump instigate this or did he commit treason? No, the argument is, is what they're doing constitutional. I, I'm not even talking about if he was implicit or, or explicit or anything like that. No. If it's not constitutional, then it's not going to happen. And because there are more than one-third of senators who are saying, this is not constitutional, then it's not going to happen. so that <laughs> that is the much long explanation that I was anticipating on the impeachment, so it's impeachment part two. I believe it is it is multiple purposes for this one to distract from what's actually happening in washington d c right now with Joe Biden and what our democratic controlled Congress is doing to our country at this moment, and two because they don't want uh they want to make sure Trump never holds office again again that's my opinion but i i think that those that just looking at the whole thing and the the legalities of this and the showmanship behind all of this i don't see how you come to a different conclusion um but i also don't get it because you know you biden was so, is so awesome and won so bigly and had more votes than anybody else ever that they're afraid that trump could beat him the next time oh, I, I, so i don't i i honestly i really think that it's not even as much about not wanting him to run again. I think that is part of it, but I really think it's about it's a distraction. This is keeping you focused on Donald Trump. It's keeping the spotlight off of Joe Biden and what Democrats are doing, and, it, and it's just keeping it's keeping everything on Trump. This is helping TV ratings, by the way. And and nobody has to answer questions about anything because all we're talking about is impeaching the president and how terrible it is. That some people are going to vote to acquit. One thing that they might be distracting you from uh, is the fact that they are trying. Democrats their their next stimulus plan is to hand out essentially one point nine trillion dollars more, which will increase the U.S. dollar supply by roughly forty percent in a twelve month period. So yeah. It may seem really nice and I've talked about this previously when we did other stimuluses. It may be really nice to get that, you know, six hundred to a thousand to I think average people would get about fourteen hundred per individual. I have friends that get five to ten grand in these stimulus packages because of their children. I'm not saying that your children, you know, shouldn't count or whatever, but I it's it's just unbelievable amounts of money. And I, I know it's nice to see that in your bank account. But the the effects, the long-term consequences of this, I, it's absolutely staggering. When we pump literally trillions of dollars into our economy, it only postpones the inevitable. We're either going to be facing larger taxes, and by the way, the government's not going to be giving you more money to pay the, the increased taxes they're going to be charging you, or we are facing a great de- depression type crisis where everything is going to come crashing down and what's really scary is that we're looking at m- probably if we continue down this road especially if they do this one and then they pursue a, a a fourth package oh my word but the the very scary thing is that both of these with these with these stimulus packages both of these scenarios are becoming increasingly increasingly likely we're not only where you see Taxes imposed on a much higher level. But you will also be facing a, a financial crisis, unlike I think anything we have seen in our lifetime. Now let me let me let me try to put this. I, I found this fantastic article because I've been doing a, a lot of research about this one, and uh, a lot of it is is really technical and a lot of dollars and cents. But uh, there's a guy that wrote a piece. Let me see. Who was this? His name is Paul Quick. He wrote in the Foundation for Economic Education. Okay. And uh, he's writing about the stimulus and why it's a good or a bad idea. Um, And I'm just going to read you part of his article because I think that he does a much better job explaining this than I can even do. And I love how... And and he has all the technicalities of it in this article, but he takes a, a section and really breaks it down really well. So... Uh, and we're going to pick up in the middle. And uh, in the middle, he recaps the the dollars and cents and technical aspect of it. So, so we're going to pick up here. Again, this is on the Foundation for Economic Education. The article is called Why Government Stimulus is Bad Policy. He says, so here is a recap of the conventional wisdom. When politicians look at re-election, they focus on the economy. When the political class looks at the economy, they look at GDP, gross domestic product. The largest com- component of GDP is consumption spending. The quickest path to stimulate GDP is through consumption. However, if consumption falls, it takes a lot of stimulus to the other components to make up that difference. So, the most popular course government takes is instead to stimulate consumption itself. Unfortunately, this is only half of the story. As Henry Hazlitt explains in Economics in One Lesson, you can you can read that also on uh, on uh, on the the FE site. Um, it's fee.org. dot org. Lots of good stuff. Uh, we need to look at the entire picture. The whole of economics can be reduced to a single lesson, and that lesson can be reduced to a single sentence. The art of economics consists in looking not merely at the immediate, but at the longer effects of any actor policy. It consists in tracing the consequences of that policy, not merely for one group, but for all groups. So what's missing? What has been ignored is the source of this stimulus. Where does the government get the wherewithal to add to GDP? You might say they get it from Congress. Others might say that the Federal Reserve simply prints the money. However, this is only focusing on the money, the dollars. But money is a medium of exchange. Money connects what I produce to what you produce. Money is not a source of value. In order to answer our question, we need to go deeper. What the powerful elites, the news media, politicians, etc., want you to see is the guy pouring water, or adding value, into a leaking pool. As he pours the water in, the media focuses on the splashing water and comments how wonderful the additional water will be for raising the level of the pool. What they do not show you is where the water is coming from, or the source." But if we take a step back and look at the whole picture, we see that the guy is filling the bucket from one end of the pool, only to run around to the other side and pour it back in. And if this wasn't bad enough, as the poor fellow is running and hurrying, he sloshes water out of the pail. The process is not adding value, and it is most likely making the situation worse. When the government spends money, it is merely transferring it. It is moving the water from one end of the pool to the other and wasting quite a bit in the process. The transfer is obvious when we are directly taxed. It is also fairly obvious when the government borrows the money because people can see the size of the national debt that will have to be paid back. However, when the government transfers wealth using inflation, it does so indirectly and it is not obvious to many people. When prices start to rise, scapegoats can be made to misdirect blame. Alright, so we're going to wrap up with this. What is inflation then? When there's an increase in the number of apples, what happens to the price of apples? The apples cost less. The price falls. If there is an increase in the amount of cars or or t-shirts or any number of things, then isn't it true that their prices also fall? Yes, of course. So what happens if we increase the amount of dollars, also known as monetary expansion? Can the price of dollars also fall? Yes. The price of the dollar or any money is called its purchasing power. As the amount of dollars increase, the purchasing power of each dollar falls. So, think of it like the apples. More apples, more dollars, the apples are now worth less. They cost less. That means we need more dollars to buy other items. In other words, if at first we could buy a gallon of milk for $3, then after monetary expansion where your dollar is now worth less, it will take more dollars, maybe 3.25 or 3.50 or even $4 to buy the next gallon of milk. This increase in the price is what we call inflation. The bottom line is that as more dollars are created, the value of every dollar diminishes. With monetary expansion, as you hold on to the dollar, the dollar's value melts away. Some might be tempted to celebrate this loss of value because it would hurt the rich more, but not so fast. Those that have their wealth in dollars are surely the most affected, the big losers. But rich people do not tend to hold their wealth in the form of cash. Instead, they hold their wealth in assets, denominated in dollars like stocks and bonds. That means as the value of the dollar falls, their assets' prices actually rise along with the inflation rate. Bad news is, government stimulus is not a solution. right. In the ending of his article, he says uh, government stimulus is not a solution because it does not and cannot expand the economy. If increasing spending was all it took to grow an economy, then every government ever would have been able to achieve enormous growth rates. Venezuela would be extremely prosperous and not a basket case. The Soviet Union would not only still exist, it would be the envy of the world. History shows us time and again the folly of reckless government spending. Many very smart people are fooled to take the wrong path, searching for economic stimulus because they are looking only at the surface. They see GDP, consumer spending, and unemployment. They see only the consequences of economic activity. They aren't looking at the deeper connections, such as the sources of value and wealth. And you can, again, I encourage you to read this whole article. It's uh, on fee.org, and it's titled Why Government Stimulus is Bad Policy, because I've skipped over a lot of things, and it's really, really good. Uh, The shallow economic thinking results in the folly of inflationary government stimulus spending. Hazlitt may have been right when he said the lessons of inflation are soon forgotten. They apparently must be relearned in every generation. So, I'm just going to put a little, wrap this up with a little bow, and then we'll be done. We'll get you out of here in under 40 minutes in today's podcast. Okay? You may get another stimulus check from the Biden administration, from this Congress, Democratic Congress. Say it's $2,000. And that might be very helpful to you, and it's going to be a blessing to many people. But what you need to bear in mind, when you're, when you're voting for people who are not, who are, who are promising to give away more stuff, whether that's money or anything else, they aren't creating value. They aren't creating wealth. In fact, what they're doing is taking some of your wealth away. Every time the government gives you money or gives someone else money, every time the government gives out money, it actually decreases your wealth. They may give you $2,000, but in giving you $2,000, the value of all of your other dollars, whether that be in your, in your house or in your car or in your bank account, the value of your other dollars is actually decreasing with every dollar that the government gives to you. Isn't that a happy little thought? And that is why you should not lay up your treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves aka the government and others break in and steal. No, lay up your treasure in heaven. That's not to say you don't provide. That's not to say you don't invest. Oh boy, we broke 40 minutes. I'm sorry. But at the end of the day don't have your focus on earthly things because they disappear in the wind like a vapor (laughs) whether it goes to taxes or if milk gets to be $4 a gallon they're going to disappear you know it, you see it happen every month when you pay your bills the money comes in, the money goes out and you think, oh my goodness wow yeah and guess what, you're going to die it's one of the two inevitable things in life besides taxes, but you're going to die and when you die zero dollars are going with you but you can have treasure in heaven There are only three things that are eternal. God, his word, and people. And if you are investing in those three things, then you have treasure that can never be taken away from you, regardless of any inflation, any taxes, or any government system. So while you're building your 401k, and you're making your smart investments, and you're voting for people who aren't going to uh, tax us into oblivion and pump money into the economy to where a dollar is worth nothing, so do, do the smart things to provide for yourself and your family. Use, use what God has given you wisely. Use the mammon of unrighteousness. Invest it. Use it well. But at the end of the day, make sure that the focus of your investments is not on things that are going to disappear and on money that's going to decrease in value, but on God, His Word, and people, because those investments are eternal and never-ending and can never be taken away. All right, we'll see you next week. Same time, same place. You can f- like us, follow us, do all the things. We're on iTunes, SoundCloud, iHeartRadio, I'm sure other places. Thank you for those of you listening here in Las Vegas on 101.1 FM. We hope you'll join us for church if you are here in Vegas at Liberty Baptist, our address 6501 West Mead Boulevard. We look forward to seeing you on Sunday at 8 o'clock, 945, or 1130. God bless.